Inverse Genius, episode number one, The Beginning. In this inaugural edition of our podcast, Eric and Don talk about what this podcast is and then spend time discussing the amazing works of Terry Pratchett. Brian Counter and Bruce Pogue talk about the amazing works of The Running Man. Inverse Genius Podcast is sponsored by our fantastic Patreons at patreon.com slash obg. Head over there and check it out. Thanks. Hello, brave listeners, and welcome to the Inverse Genius Podcast. This is... Inaugural episode. Inaugural episode. Uh, Yeah. I'm Donald Dennis. You can find me all over the wilds of the internet as Walsfio, and I'm here with the man himself, Eric Dewey. That is me, and you can find me as ericdewey.com or Eric, A-Y-R-K. So, Don, I thought we might start off this inaugural podcast by talking about what it is. What it is being this podcast, which is uh, the Inverse Genius Podcast. It's sort of going to be our flagship podcast for the show, which is kind of strange because it's the last one we're starting. Yep. <laughs> I think we're doing this backwards, Eric, but like so many things, we're doing it in the inverse fashion. Indeed. Um, the idea is it's going to be a show about all the other stuff that's not necessarily game related, but that we're interested in and we want to talk about. And more importantly, bringing in all the cool people that we've met over the years through these podcasting experiences to have them contribute to it as well. So think of it as sort of an all-star show of all the things that we think are neat. Right. It's it's the chance for us to talk about stuff that we don't want to do a 187 episode show about but that we want to talk about and hopefully you'll enjoy hearing about it and you know some people are going to listen to every episode and some folks are going to say oh wow you've got this guy on talking about this thing and we think that's a wonderful deal so I'm going to listen to it so please subscribe to us here at the uh, Inverse Genius website but if or through iTunes where it shall appear hopefully in short order uh, but if you just want to stop in and catch every other episode or whatever it is, we're, we're happy with that as well. Yep. And at this stage, the general idea is there will be three segments, roughly 10 minutes, 15 minutes each, and they each talk about a different thing. Having said that, of course, this episode won't have that because we brought Bruce and Brian, Bruce Vogue and Brian Counter on, and they just kept on talking. So <laughs> They talk be... nearly as much as we do. Exactly. But that's the general idea, and that's what you can expect here. We'll talk about books or movies or something we saw on the internet or cats or who knows what. But it's all related to our interests. For example, I want to do a episode about the Daredevil, Jessica Jones, and Daredevil Season 2 stuff on Netflix at some point. But since Eric hasn't listened to it, he doesn't get to be a part of that conversation. And then also, one day, we will finally get to talk about Farscape. <laughs> oh, yes, Farscape. Our love. One of our one of our many science fiction loves. Indeed. If only they'd made a board game on it, we could have hammered it into the show earlier. <laughs> mm. Well, you know, we could design such a thing. I bet the license is cheap now. Could be, could be. So, before we delve into a, a topic, Don, there are probably a few people who are wondering where the name Inverse Genius came from in the first place. All right, so... Do we want to know the how we explain stuff to people who aren't fans of Pratchett, or do we want to tell them the the Pratchettarian version of, of things? So let's go just the general aren't fans of Pratchett. All right, so basically we try to look at things from other perspectives. All right, so if we come up with unusual solutions, not the standard genius sort of things at all, it's like we came up with this dumb idea and somehow it worked, 
or uh, we came up with this great idea and it, it worked for something completely unrelated, which tends to be the way my life happens. Indeed. So now and you give the Pratchett explanation. All right. So it all starts with bloody stupid, stupid Johnson. Right. Or B.S. Johnson. I think his real name is Bergholt, right? It could be. It could be. Um, as we'll talk in a moment, the folklore behind the Discworld is immense. But he was one of the rulers of Ankh-Mor Park back in the day, and he was renowned for being, well, just creating these incredibly complicated and stupid inventions. And so instead of him being a genius in these, you know, Leonardo da Vinci-type inventions he made, he was actually an inverse genius because they actually worked, you know, made things worse than they were before they were built. Like he rounded to pi and created dimension. He rounded pi to the nearest digit and created a dimensional rift. Exactly. Or he made some kind of uh, castle garden that was so small you could actually step on it. That's right. Because he put the inches instead of feet. Exactly. So basically, if you've ever seen Spinal Tap, that really miniature Stonehenge could have been a B.S. Johnson invention, but it would have worked for Judaical sacrifices. Exactly. Or could have been a cheese shredder, a very proficient cheese shredder, because that's the kind of thing he does. And strangely enough, it's the kind of thing I accidentally do from time to time as well. I was going to say, it felt, it felt strangely appropriate. Yes. And so that's where the name Inverse Genius came from. Um, so don't sue us, Pratchett Estate. Please don't yes. sue us. We love Please you. Please don't sue us. So, in fact, let's, let's bestow a little bit more love upon Terry Pratchett. All right, so Pratchett is mostly known for his satire of fantasy tropes as well as his uh, satire of, well, things happening in the real world that he then transmogrifies into a fantasy trope in and of itself. Exactly. Which is all, which is all exemplified by what, Eric? The, oh, the Discworld. Yes, Discworld is the flat world that's being supported by four elephants on the back of a giant turtle that's floating through space. The reason why all of this exists is because every bell curve has two ends. <laughs> that's right. Turtles all the way down. Exactly. And so, you know, on one end of the bell curve has to be all the really weird stuff. And just to kind of take a step back, I mean, my first encounter with Terry Pratchett was probably in the late 80s because of an, a Dragon Magazine article. There was a review of The Light Fantastic. Right. And having been a big fan of Douglas Adams, uh, you know, reading this, it was like, oh, this sounds like the fantasy equivalent of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And I was actually uh, at a convention in Bartlesville, of all places. We stopped by a bookstore. They happened to have A Color of Magic and the Light Fantastic in that bookstore. I bought them, and a love affair was uh, commenced. Nice. My first exposure was when I was reading Robert Aspern books, and a friend said, no, no, don't read that trash. Here, read Terry Pratchett. And I was so offended that it took me three more years to read any Terry Pratchett. Not going to understand that. I like Robert Aspern. Uh, totally different, though. Yes, totally, totally different, but sort of from the same soul. I th or, well, same same soul of having fun with fantasy as opposed to everybody taking themselves so seriously. Exactly. I actually finally read my first Pratchett when I was at a work, out of work and living in California and staying with my buddy Tim, and he had a couch full of Terry Pratchett books with those <laughs> really ugly American covers for the Terry Pratchett books. Yes. and oh, Not ugly so much as austere, I guess. And I was like, oh, fine, I will read Eric, because it's the short one. Mm -hmm. It's the one that said Faust, with Faust crossed out. 
Did you have the illustrated or non-illustrated? No, no, it was the American one. Okay. And it was sort of an eye-opening thing, and I was like, okay, fine, that was good enough, I will read Guards, Guards, and from there, I've been full speed ahead, all things Pratchett. Mr. Beakle is a poo. That, that was from Eric. Um, you know, let's let's talk real briefly. One of the struggles as an American being excited about reading Pratchett was that the American publishers were just crap. Uh, the books would come out six to eight months later. The covers, uh, the British covers were beautiful. The American covers were just bl- boring and blasé. They, they just really felt like they didn't know what they were doing. In fact, one of the things that I was real excited about when I was going to TU was the fact that TU would get the British editions... And so I would get to read these books, the library would, I would get to read these books, you know, six, eight months before the rest of America did. And so I was always way ahead of everybody else that I could talk to about these books. You say that, and yet you still haven't read Pratchett's last book, Rest of Soul. Well, yeah. And the fact that he had passed away is the main reason why I haven't read it just yet. But uh, before we jump ahead there... Um, so anytime I happen to have anybody I know going to England, I would always ask them to to pick stuff up. So luckily, my girlfriend at the time, later my wife, spent a semester in England. And so I got so much Pratchett stuff uh, from her. It was fantastic, including a couple of autographed books. Ooh, nice. And I'll go one step further. After she came back from England, uh, I had they had these things called aerograms, which are basically letters that you can mail, but it's like a letter and envelope all in one, and it's cheaper than just mailing a regular envelope. So I had them left over, but I, I didn't know anybody in England or and except for one person whose name was Terry Pratchett. So I wrote him a letter, and darn if he didn't write me back. No. And, uh, yeah, so I actually have a letter from Terry Pratchett. I, I talked about, you know, how much I loved his stuff, and I, I briefly said, uh, you know, I, I wasn't a big fan of the American covers. I write the British ones better, and he was like, well, it is what it is, but thank you, you know, so much for, for reading my stuff, signed by Terry Pratchett. So one of my prized possessions is an actual letter from Terry Pratchett. That's pretty neat. I have one of the pre-press copies of uh, Thud, Ooh. Which, um, which is... It's like they send out the proof copies of, hey, we're going to do it to, to reviewers and stuff before they it actually comes out. And so it's kind of a weird shape, weird size or whatever. And I think I read it like three times before it actually hit the shelves. Because that was, I think, my first year in Syracuse, 2005-ish. And I was like, I'm going to read this. I'm like, well, I don't have cable. I'm going to read this again. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, so, so to talk about his actual writings, he does humorous fantasy. He has done a few other series as well, which we can talk about at a later episode. Um, but it's not just kind of slapstick, you know, funny stuff. There is a lot of deep satire in there. And there is just a lot of neat things that you can pick up. Um, just each time you read it. It's one of those books where each time you read it, you get a slightly different feel or a slightly different thing about it. So what is satire, Eric? Satire is taking uh, something and playing it straight, but you're really making fun of it. Right. It's shining a light on the absurdity of something while pretending to pl- to play it straight. Exactly. And he does that so wonderfully. And, and to the point where... Like, for instance, one of my favorite Discworld books is is Small Gods, because I feel that that book has probably one of the greatest climaxes I've ever read in a book. Which we will not reveal here. Oh, absolutely not. But it is incredibly well done. Um, 
<laughs> so I like Small Gods for a different reason. I mean, I agree it's got a great climax, but it is a standalone book that mm-hmm. you can get into and read it and decide if if Pratchett's writing style is for you because it's sort of after he's gotten past the first few books, you know, Light Fantastic and whatnot. Um, and it is not going to interrupt anything else that happens throughout the rest of the series because it pretty much takes place before any of the other stories in the Discworld, though it's not a prequel. It has nothing to do with any of that. Um, scary nonsense. But it... Uh, you know, it tells a great standalone story, and you can say, "Yes, I like Pratchett. I am now going to read further." Yeah, and the the other point about his satire is it's an incredible satire on religion, and not a specific religion, just religion in general. And you know, I happen to be a fairly religious guy, but on the same token, I'm not offended. You know, he's not offending me by writing stuff that I may not necessarily uh, agree with, and in fact. It's not that I don't agree with it. He he has, like you said, he shines this great light on some of the absurdities that religion perpetrates. Right. It's less it's less of an indictment of faith because he deals with faith in another strange way in some of his books. It is more of a indictment of, of hierarchical structures yeah. of any type, in this case, focusing mostly on a specific type of religion. Yes. And and, and so I just use that as, as a general example of... of the deepness and still the entertainment value. I mean, there are footnotes, and some of those footnotes are so incredibly hilarious. Um, like there was a, a guy who, uh, you know, everything he touched turned to Glod, and there's a little footnote down below that starts to tell you about how Glod was this dwarf, and he kept being teleported over to where this guy was. And I mean, it's just this little footnote that is so incredibly hilarious um, that you just enjoy you know, reading it again and again, or in my case, practically have memorized it. <laughs> and and the footnotes are one of the main reasons why there will never be a truly 100% great theatrical adaptation. Yes. It's a symptom of that because Pratchett plays with language in, in ways that few authors do. He's, you know, using words to punch. He's using words to uplift. He is using words to uh, to make you think. And a lot of, some of it's internal dialogue, and some of it is the footnotes, and it, you know, what is hilarious to read is not always hilarious to watch from the outside. Yeah, and there have been some fairly uh, popular and available on DVD adaptations of his things, uh, including Color of Magic and... Um, Hogfather. Uh, Hogfather. And they're done very well, and they're done very lovingly. But they, in my f- opinion, they have they're a little drier than the actual material is. And I think it's exactly because of what you said. Yeah. And there is a supposedly going to be a guards, guards TV show, but I don't know if that's fallen apart or, or what's happened. Cause it's been a couple of years since I've heard about it, but you know, and there has been translations. Our friends at, uh, is it back spindle games or black spindle games? They have designed a Pratchett game and Martin Wallace has done a Pratchett game. And, and you know, some of them are homages to the characters and some of them, are sort of, you know, hey, this is the city and some of the activities that might be tough. None of them truly capture the spirit of the books because it's really, really tough to do. You might be able to do it with a role-playing game. and In fact, I own the role-playing game for it. But uh, it is a reading experience at its best. Or a comic book experience. The Last Hero, which is an illustrated novel, is amazing as well. Yes. 
And there'll be arguments among fans. You know, some people don't like the first couple of books. Um, <clears throat> you know, Don't pick on I, me. I like all of them for different reasons. But at the very least, the, the man was an amazing, prolific author. And honestly, I, I love all of the books. Some I love more than others. But there's just... It's just always a treat to read, and I'm so excited. I mean, I'm sad that he passed, but I'm so excited that he left such a body of work that, you know, every few years when I decide to reread the series again, it's suddenly a six, eight, nine-month commitment. Right. And, and oh, this is something we should talk about, reading series. Once you've read whatever it is that you like to read, you don't have to reread the whole series over again. I rarely reread uh, The Light Fantastic or Color of Magic. I generally start with the witches if I'm going to do that because what he's done is he's broken up his disc world into different kinds of stories. So there's the Rincewind series, which is generally kind of a, a road movie travelogue sort of we're going to encounter weird things in this world and run away from them so that we don't die. Uh, and then there's the witches, which is... Uh, well, how would you describe the witches, Eric? So the witches are very Shakespearean. In fact, one of them is incredibly Shakespearean, book-wise. Uh, but they also tend to play with either tropes about men and women can't do this or that, or, you know, country bumpkin folks are like this and city folk are much smarter. The, they tend to deal with those kinds of uh, stories. Right, and how that everything is not always as it seems because of exactly. that. Exactly. And then there is... Oh, let me pull up my thing. I've got a, a website... Um, that you can find. It's uh, sites.google.com slash site slash Walsfio slash books slash Terry Pratchett, where I've sort of broken these things down. Um, forgive me the you know issues. The watch books are the next ones that we'll talk about. And a lot of that has to do with police procedurals and sort of defining what duty is. Yes. And then the last... The most recent ones are the Moist Von Lipwig ones, and those tend to deal with technology, whether it's the Postal Service or computers or uh, telephones. Faxes, um, you know, all faxes. that kind of thing. Yeah, so they tend to kind of deal with people and technology. But and then there's a whole bunch of just one-off books. We mentioned Ooh, Small no, there's Gods. there's two more categories. I mean, there's two oh, categories. One is, is the mythomorphology segment, all right? And that, oh, okay. that is but, death where mostly they're the ones that have death as the main character, or yeah, oh. they, are, they are embodiments of myth as part of the main cycle of stuff. And that's a whole classification of, of a type of storytelling. Hogfather is one of my favorite stories, which is sort of the, what are the ancient histories of the Santa Claus kinds of myths and the Winter Festival and all that kind of stuff, um, yep. and what happens when you take that away from a people. Yes. So. Uh, actually, another one of his books is the second greatest climax, and uh, was it uh, the Reaper Man? Oh, it has one of the second best, greatest climax. <laughs> some of the best quotes of all times, right there yes. in that book. Definitely. And then uh, there are the standalone books, which are small, small gods, moving pictures, pyramids, monstrous regiments, which sort of they tell an isolated story, and for whatever reason, they didn't get their own whole series of books. Yeah, it's okay though, because a lot of those, you know, like uh, moving pictures, was a big. Big play on, uh, you know, moving pictures on, on movies, and and it was just a great story. And some of the characters appear now and then, but you know, it's not anything I'd want to revisit over and over again. Right. In fact, moving pictures felt like it should have been part. It's like the pregenitor of the uh, Moist von Liquid's Moist von Lipwig saga, 
or yeah. series of books. Okay, so one thing is you've got the audiobooks, and I've got a huge selection of the Pratchett books. I had them all at one time. I've gotten rid of all of my paperbacks, and now I have a couple of the really small versions of some of the other books, which is weird. They are quite literally just a little bit bigger than, or smaller than my billfold was at the time. Um, and those are kind of neat. And then there's the children's books that we haven't talked about at all. Yeah, which we'll have to go into in a later show. But Yeah, we'll talk about that later. Um, but if you are looking, if you're a fan of Terry Pratchett, you need to read, and you haven't read the Tiffany Aching books, go read them and especially read the last one, which is The Shepherd's Crown. Um, and it's sort of Pratchett realizing that uh, he was not, not long, long for the world. Yeah. I'm, uh, I'm gearing myself up to read it. <laughs> yeah. And I tell you, I, I uh, cried. I cried during it. It was, yeah. it was, it was moving and intense, but it was also a children's book. So I guess if maybe if the kids don't know what everything's behind it, then, then perhaps it won't be so big of a deal, but yeah. so you can go and get the audiobooks through audible. They are amazing. I wish we had audible as a sponsor cause we'd send you there to get them. But, uh, I'm pretty much replacing my collection of books with the audiobooks, Um, so that, so that I've got them and I can listen to them on the go. Cool. So we will be revisiting this uh, again, but uh, we definitely wanted to, to start off our inaugural Inverse Genius episode with a, with a tribute to Terry Pratchett. Yes, uh, and if you're a fan of it and there's a particular book or type of saga that you want to talk about or want to join us to talk about, let us know. We don't, have, we don't know who of our uh, contributors to the show are already big Pratchett fans, but... Uh, you know, it would be nice to to have someone else besides just Eric and myself chat about those books. About Sir Terry. Well, thank you for listening, and we'll move on to our next segment. But I'm Eric Dewey. And I'm Donald Dennis. And you're listening to the Inverse Genius Podcast. Welcome to the Inverse Genius Podcast, or if you've already been introduced to the show, welcome to our part of the Inverse Genius Podcast, or as I'm going to call it from this point forward, the good part. <laughs> I am Bruce Vogue. You might know me from the Party Game Cast featuring the Party Game Cast, a show where we talk about food. Uh, you might know me as one of the hosts of On Board Games. I appear on there occasionally, and you can find me on the wilds of the internet on Twitter at BruceCoThinks, and find me on BGG as BruceCo. And joining me today. It is my pleasure, it is my honor to have working with me in today's subject matter, a man who everything he does is counterproductive, Brian Counter. Thanks for the shill. Hello. Hello, and while we're shilling, tell people about the podcast that you're working on. I'm on Dice Tower itself. I do Cult of the Old, where I talk about old board games that deserve some love. And then I've started my own podcast with another guy to help the visually impaired and the blind who want to get into gaming. That's called A Touch of Gaming. That has about six listeners right now, one of which is my mom. Very good. Out there, please uh, give him listener number seven. That's right. And if you want to contact me i am at cult of the old on twitter i'm heymondo at gmail.com but none of this that we've done is why we're here today today we're talking about the 1987 arnold schwarzenegger tour de force the running man one of my favorite movies of all time and i think it has to be my favorite arnold schwarzenegger movie but first let's give you some background on the source material that led to this movie so the first thing i want to do is is i want to give you the big spoiler alert if for some reason you're going to read the running man or you're going to watch The Running Man, you don't want to know what happens. Because this form of geekdom that Brian and I are jumping into 
is about one piece of media we have to talk about. So if that was something you didn't want spoiled, jump onto the next section. Uh, neither one of us are mad at you. So the first thing to know about The Running Man, it is based on a Stephen King book called The Running Man from 1982. He wrote it as Richard Bachman, because this was a period in his career where he wanted to hide his name because people were saying, oh, the only reason Stephen King gets all of these book sales is because he's Stephen King. So he wrote as Richard Bachman to prove that he really was the writer that he thought he was. The plot works like this. Essentially, there is a guy in a dystopian future where money is scarce. Uh, His wife and kid are in trouble. His wife has had to become a prostitute for money. He decides he's going to join the Games Network, which at this point in the future, there is a Games Network run by the government that will pay you for dangerous game shows. He joins that. He ends up finding out that he can make it to the top game in the network, which is The Running Man, which essentially is absolutely going to kill him. No one survives this. No one makes it, but there's a bucket of money. At the end of the rainbow, if he can beat it longer than anyone ever has, it's worth a billion dollars to his family. So he finds out he's going to be on the basic rules go like this. He gets a 12-hour head start, and he can go anywhere in the world while paid assassins are hunting him down. Not only do they hunt him down, but they also get the network to help. So eventually what happens is, it's sort of like what we see now with people asking for help on Facebook to find something, is that the entire country knows that if they can get this guy, there's money in it for them as well. The longer he makes it, the more money he's going to make. If he can make it 30 days, it's a billion dollars, but he's not going to make it 30 days. The other thing he must do every day, he has to send two transmissions to the network. Often that is how they're going to try to track him, but he must send two every single day. At one point, he ends up moving to Boston. He gets trapped in a building in Boston that he explodes, killing a few police officers there. So people are not a fan of his. He hides in what essentially they call in the review I saw sort of the ghetto of Boston, where he learns that the poor people are being super oppressed and hurt. So he starts incorporating these messages about how bad it is to be poor in what he's sending every day to the game show, to the games network. They start dubbing over his political stuff with just general anger and vitriol, hoping that people will hate him more and more and more. This leads, eventually, he kind of, he almost gets caught, he doesn't get caught, he almost gets caught. He ends up with a hostage and an airplane, swearing that he has a bomb that can destroy a city. And he starts flying his plane low near heavily populated places so that they can't shoot him with a ground-to-air missile, so that if they do, they think they will destroy this bomb. Eventually, Killian, the main villain, the guy who runs the games network, sends a message to our hero and says, here's the deal, man. How about we just stop this? You've made it longer than anyone ever has. How about we make you a hunter? We get you off that gosh darn airplane and just end this whole thing, man. It's just being stupid. To which our hero essentially says, I feel like if I do that, you're going to kill my family. And Killian essentially says, I've already killed your entire family. I did it before you started. Now what? I know you don't have a bomb. The plane would have told me if you had a bomb. I've got you now. And essentially what Richards, the hero of the story, does, goes, okay, I'll work with you. He then takes the plane, runs it into the skyscraper at the games channel, and, quote, fire rains for 20 blocks away. Mm -hmm. That is essentially how it works. We've left out a lot of pieces, but that is the basic plot line of the way the book works. Now, I know you also looked over it. Did did I get that right, Brian? That sounds great to me. I think the one thing I want to say is he lets out one of his hostages before he crashes the plane. Yeah, I did forget about that. The one woman he kidnaps and convinces that he's actually good, he does let her go before he kills himself and everyone in the game's built. And I think it's more cynical than the actual movie before we get into that, because it's the underclass is something that needs to be in 
place because the society needs to have all these people serving us, but you have to keep them down. You know, it, it almost reminds me of the uh, X-Files guy, Cigarette Smoking Man. They give us power. And- yeah, I can definitely see that. I, another interesting thing is the book is written as 100 chapters. It starts at T-100 and counting and goes all the way down to zero when the plane finally crashes in, mm-hmm. which is just kind of a neat way to tell a story. Yeah. Uh, the thing to remember is that this was 1982. Something like that seems trite now, but it came from places like uh, Stephen King's The Running Man. A couple other things to note, stories and movies and bits of media kind of around The Running Man. Uh, The first thing to talk about really quickly is the 1924 story, The Most Dangerous Game. This was a, a short story that essentially at its core was a rich person hunts human beings for sport. And the idea of this Although I'm sure it was propagated somewhere, the first time it kind of came to being published was the most dangerous game in 1924. Of course, the most dangerous game being human. In 1958, there was a short story called The Prize of Peril that more or less is The Running Man. It's a story following one guy who is on dangerous game shows. But that is what the deal is. This guy's like a stuntman that survives dangerous game show after dangerous game show and then ends up on the prize of peril, where all of the people in the country have a chance to hunt him for sport and money, but he develops fans, and it's a whole thing. But that was sort of the first time anything looked at. It was the first story people seemed to be able to document the idea of reality TV even being thought of was in this 1958 story, and it very much was The Running Man conceptual. The other ones I'm going to mention have come out after The Running Man. One is 1999's Battle Royale. It was a book written in Japan that eventually ended up being a gruesome Japanese movie where a high school class is forced to kill one another until one is left standing. It sort of has the feeling of, hey, the running man was sure a thing. How can we make people even more squeamish? How about we make people under 18 murder each other? And it ends up just being some real violent stuff where some of the kids in the class are especially violent. And you have a love story that you kind of see in more things because the, the love story in The Running Man is hardly existent. It's no. there a little bit but not in any real way like you'll see in future pieces of media. The other one I wanted to mention, just being a bit of a wrestling fan, is that 2007's The Condemned with Stone Cold Steve Austin is a very similar story. Steve Austin's in jail. A rich guy takes him out of jail. They put nine people or ten people on an island. Only one of them gets to live, and rich people bet on it and watch it through the internet. So it is very much the same story as The Running Man, but in the current internet existence that we're living in, where this sort of thing could potentially happen through closed-circuit television. Back in the 80s, early 90s, for a lot of people to see this, you would have had to make a television show out of this. And we've all accepted, at least at this point in society, we're not making a TV show where people just kill one another for real. But on the internet, especially more as the dark web becomes a more popular phrase to use, we find this all to be conceptually more believable. That took that concept and found a way to make it a little more believable in our current existence. And then that leads us to probably the most popular piece of fiction about any of this. And I'm going to take it over to you, Brian, to kind of tell people perspective on that. But that would be 2008's The Hunger Games. Yeah, The Hunger Games was a book that I think one of my kids read. And then we went to go see the movie. I didn't have high expectations for it, but I was pleasantly surprised. Donald Sutherland plays the evil leader and there are a bunch of districts and they have this game to keep the people in line, essentially. I'm, I'm overly summarizing here. But the way they do it is they send their kid or two 
graduate from each district, and they basically kill each other, and the winner, they let them live. And it's just kids killing each other at the beginning, and the main hero or heroine runs off a little bit, and some of her friends die, and it's heart-wrenching. I will swallow my male pride and say when the young girl died, spoiler alert, I actually teared up. It was a pleasant surprise, and it was a little predictable in spots, but it was, I love the adventure of it, being outside, and it was uh, an enjoyable movie for me. And very much a lot of people, because I haven't seen it, but a lot of people pointed me and they said, no, seriously, Bruce, this is the next evolution of what the movie was for The Running. Mm -hmm. I would agree. So we've talked a lot about what's around it. Let's jump into the actual movie itself. The 1987 movie stars Arnold Schwarzenegger as our main hero. I What is his first name? I always know him as Richards, but ben. I never... Ben Richards. I always want to say Reed Richards, but that's uh, Mr. Fantastic. Uh, and it has Richard Dawson as Damon Killian. Yes. I always, I always, it's the same thing I always remember as Killian. Uh, the movie also, to note, and we'll talk about this a little more in a second, featured, uh, it had one state governor, the governor of California, Arnold Schwarzenegger. It also had the governor of Minnesota, Jesse Ventura. Mm. Not at the time. At this point, he had stopped being a wrestler. It's at this point, he still might have been known as Jesse the Body, the body Ventura. Ventura yeah. Before he became Jesse the Mind Ventura. And ran for office. So, Brian, tell people we've discussed the plot of the book. Let's give them the plot of the movie. Well, the plot of the movie is, you know, there you always have translation of media between book and film can be quite different. Uh, even though I like the idea of the open space for the movie, instead of releasing Ben to the free world, there was a bunch of city blocks that they released him into and said avoid getting killed. But the reason they put him in, and this is important at least in the movie, was they doctored up some film where he was a helicopter pilot and there was some food rioting in this very poor world. And he said they, they told him to shoot with massive machine guns, the rioting people. And he said, I can't do that. They're just hungry. But uh, he doesn't want to shoot them. And that's essentially how they pull him in and they doctor the film and make it look like he shot a bunch of, of starving people. And, you know, Soylent Green is people. Oops, different movie. But essentially they pull him into this game and they put him with someone who was, was messing with the government files on the side out of curiosity but she's in there although there's some good star power besides richard dawson of course yafet koto plays one of his fellow runners and the guy playing weiss i don't know the actor's name but they make up this kind of ragtag team of people trying to get out alive of course weiss has the upload codes and this is how they're going to try and interrupt the network and tell the people the truth you know underlined caps bolded quotes because the network is lying to you and of course this is a very cynical approach but so was the book, you know, the big overarching government and dystopian future. I think all sci-fis like to display dystopian futures in The Man Is Out To Get You and or some kind of cautionary tale. This one is the former. Essentially, they go through these grids and they are hunted by hunters. I think the first one is memorable for me, a little geeky thing, because he is Sub-Zero. The tagline is he chops his enemies into quivering bloody sushi, which is just so <laughs> stupidly funny. And it still makes me laugh to this day how ridiculous it is but that's kind of the feeling of this movie it's it's cheese and it's got a lot of blood and violence that's not needed but you know what it's just stupid fun if you're not offended by that kind of violence and so of course he's not going to die right away he takes care of sub-zero and then he runs into fellow hunters along the way i'm not going to describe all of them he he takes a chainsaw and let's just say he splits chainsaw from the bottom up which makes all of us guys just cross our legs and wince a little bit when we watch that it, it was a pretty rough scene it, it was i, I mean i 
I physically felt some kind of nerve damage when that was going on the first time I saw that. It was uh, it was amazing. And then he takes care of, of all people, Jim Brown, the former very famous NFL running back. He takes care of him who played fireball. Then he almost kills the, the big dude. I remember him as Grossberger from Stir Crazy. Um, <laughs> he doesn't kill him because he says, I'm not a sadistic SOB like you are. I'm not going to kill you. And then they go to commercial. And so all along this this route, though, you see them panning back and forth into the studio. And there's contestants. Uh, the contestants on screen are displayed and the people are all rooting against them. And there's side games and money changing on the streets on who's going to be who's going to get the next kill. And it's just this multimedia event. And the focus is just how fun it is to kill these evil criminals because they only put criminals in the grid, you see. And then they show this film of three guys who allegedly made it out alive and they're enjoying their life in paradise. Well, we find out they're actually really dead and they're lying to you again, the man is, because they want you to think that you can get out of the running man and they're not going to let you out. So this this kind of thing keeps going and going. By the end of the movie, I'm just going to cut right there if you don't mind. Not a problem. He does get out, kind of. They actually upload all of the satellite stuff into Mick Fleetwood. I was waiting for a side course of Rhiannon to break out, <laughs> but him and Dweezil Zappa upload all of the good, all of the truthful information about the massacre and how Ben Richards didn't really do it, and the world is now more knowledgeable and free, of course. So they get the information out there, and then Richards comes back to the studio, even after Killian offers him a job as a hunter, and basically he kills him. I'm not doing it justice. It's kind of funny the way it, what happens but he sends him down the tube and he goes out and explodes and then of course he ends and you know he gets out all happy and everything so the the movie ends well and then a couple things to note in the difference i think between the book and the movie in the book richards made a decision about his life i'm going to join the most dangerous game to help my family the government didn't grab him i think the allegory in that story is people can be turned into sheep and they don't know it that all these people were hunting him down. He really is a good guy. He eventually has to fight the man. Mm-hmm. In the movie, Richards is a good guy. They turn him into a criminal. They send him in. There is no confusion. In this case, it is completely a work of the government. There's no decision on his part. He has to fight in this game whether he likes it or not. Right. It takes out um, some of the human element from the yeah, book. A lot of it. The other interesting thing is, as you're talking about with the gambling, is that... And this is a major point in the movie where you watch a tonal shift, is that it goes from... I'm going to bet on Sub-Zero to win. And then all of a sudden they go, I'm going to bet Richards to win. And you watch Richard Dawson's Killian, you know, practically start cussing at this old woman going, well, uh, that's not, you can't bet on him. No, I think he's bad. I think he's going to win. And you watch society start to take the side of what was presumably the bad guy. Sure. And that's where it all starts to turn over for the government, is they start to realize this lie they've built is completely falling apart around them. So it's even heavier-handed, in my opinion, than the book was. And some may disagree, but that is certainly how I feel. The other thing to note is that the love interest in the beginning, Richards knows he's being chased by the government. He tries to escape, and while at the airport, Maria Conchita Alonso sells him out, and that's how he ends up in The Running Man. And later, she's trying to find the original tape, finds it in an office. They find her doing it, so they shoot her into the Running Man game, too. Mm. So she initially is a good, law-abiding citizen, helping them catch the bad guy, and then becomes a part of it, which is another thing, like, kind of in the story they're trying to give you there. So one thing, I think, to note about this movie, not only is it a great, crappy 80s adventure movie with Arnold Schwarzenegger, not only... 
does it have kind of a great sci-fi dystopian television future, which is personally my favorite dystopian future, is the evil television future. (laughs) But unlike a lot of Arnold Schwarzenegger movies, this movie had a fantastic villain. Absolutely. I think if you look at a lot of the movies that Arnold is known for, you're looking, you know, like Commando... Uh, What made Predator so great was the Predator. It wasn't really... Arnold Schwarzenegger has always, for his career, played like generic, hunky guy. But it could be any other... It could be The Rock, as we've well learned. It could be Van Damme. It could be Seagal. It could be... What made this movie, in my opinion, was that Richard Dawson played such an amazing villain in Killian. No, he made the movie. Without him, even with Schwarzenegger, this would not be the same movie at all. And I think part of the reason is because of his history. He was on a match game for a while, and he became the voice and the face and the franchise of Family Feud. And he ran that thing, and it was he was beloved, and that's why the antithesis of his nice, smoochy kiss character was done so well, because he played it with that same cheesy veneer, but he was so evil on the inside. And that's really what made it work. If you had never seen Family Feud like I grew up with, uh, you might not have gotten the bonuses of having that antithesis on film and that's what made it so great to me because a lot of what helped this is they didn't give you a lot of a grounding backstory to him being a great host and being beloved and they didn't waste the time even really doing that they showed you the intro of one episode and they were like oh by the way it's richard dawson isn't it like they assume clearly that the viewer knows who this guy is and knows his background Mm -hmm. because when you see this who in any other movie like i said and for for kids growing up they may not know who this is and it may not have the same impact but when he goes who loves you and who do you love you're like oh that's clearly the guy he's always been in my real life in my living room absolutely since 1978 perfect casting and then to see him turn and cuss and threaten lives That's where you kind of get hit in the gut, and it's, you know, just a very uh, basic reaction you get because you know this guy's career, and you're like, no, but he's he kisses people awkwardly and (laughs) hits on people's wives. Mm -hmm. He doesn't threaten people's lives. That's not a thing he does, you know, and that is a ton of what just made this so valuable Mm -hmm. was being able to bring him in. All of the scene you were mentioning about he turns him into quivering sushi, Uh, that's because he's an Asian guy. That's the reason that's the line they use. He is an Asian guy named Sub-Zero who is a giant hockey player who plays with a bladed hockey stick. Cheesy as you can possibly get. But when Richard Dawson tells you that this guy's great, you do find yourself believing it because of so many years of the feud. Absolutely. Which is really fantastic. And we were talking, we'll get off topic for just a moment, sort of. Uh, We were discussing if a remake of this could be done. And I... I was saying to Brian that for years for me, the problem was, was I didn't know who would play Killian. I didn't know who you had that was considered such a habitual, consistent, nice guy that had been a game show host, but was just, we all love him and was really a great dude. And then if he turned in the movie, it would sort of hit your heart a little bit. And I think for me, that's Wayne Brady. Mm-hmm. I think now with him having done Who's Line and having done the one about the singing bee... And now finally doing Let's Make a Deal, he has become a beloved character. And I think to see him have that same turn of who loves you and who do you love, and then don't worry, Richards, I'm going to murder you in there. (laughs) You're like, oh my goodness, that's Wayne Brady. Yeah, or, you know, let me throw this out there. Uh, Jeff Probst might also work. He seems like such a really nice guy in real life. Yeah, I could definitely see that. I think we are finally at a point that game shows are becoming popular enough that we have a few characters like Steve Harvey, I think, could do Mm -hmm. 
uh, we've got a few people now that finally can fill that Killian role with the gravitas that that villain has to have because that villain can't directly fight the hero. That villain can only send goons after him. And when the hero meets the villain, the villain has to immediately crumble like a poorly baked cake. Uh, That's a requirement. So finding these game show hosts was the tough part, but I think we have a, a time now in media where this kind of thing could be remade. And I think it would be really cool. Yeah, I do too. I think the what I didn't like about the Running Man, I know it's a translation of media. You have to make some some exceptions. What I liked about the Hunger Games was it was outside. Personally, I love the exploration, being outside, all that kind of stuff. It offers so much more, and it might cost more for the filmmakers to do a live version outside instead of having it in studio in in city blocks you know in the storyline i think they could do that one might complain well this is just another version of of the hunger games but i think they could do this if they if they had the right people in place and they had the right settings in place just with a slightly different plot line the last thing i want to talk about here because it came out right with the movie uh, was there was a video game that apparently really struck some people as important. Uh, I watched it on YouTube, the whole game. It was on the Amiga. Uh, It was way painful to watch. Like, way slow and painful. It did have some parts of the story. There were some really neat graphics where you see, like, Killian enter the game at the end, and you see Schwarzenegger enter the game at the beginning. Beyond that, it is just a yellow-suited Arnold Schwarzenegger kicking dogs in the face for, like, 25 minutes and then shooting people with guns. Not worth catching. However, there was a completely, quote-unquote, unrelated game that was one of the better games to come out of the 90s, uh, which was Smash TV. Yeah, unrelated, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. It very clearly was directly the running man. You were in an arena, you had the big innovation in this game was you had two joysticks, one that ran your character and one that decided which direction they shot in. Which, and they were both eight-directional joysticks. Yeah, and I, I think the people who made that game were the Robotron people. Which very well may have been. But the main deal was you ran around in circles and collected like televisions and stacks of money while people tried to kill you. And every time you made it through a level, there was like a scantily clad woman introducing the next round and then you went over it again. So it very clearly was the running man. Oh, and there was blood and guts everywhere. They did in that game what you could not do on TV. And it was it was stupid fun. No doubt about it. So I would say if you're out there and... The idea of, like, the game show dystopian future, is it all amusing to you? The one that we've sort of, we're definitely building with shows like Big Brother and Survivor and all these kind of weird game shows where we sort of quasi-hurt each other. We're headed there, and I think if you want to see a piece of media that really shows you what this looked like through the prism of 1980s population, you can do, I would argue, no better than The Running Man. Yeah. I'd like to add one thing. I think I've talked to you about this, Bruce. I took Royal Turf, the board game, and I reskinned it to the Running Man, and it's a it's a lot of fun. I mean, you know, you've got all the runners. I've got the different uh, runners and characters, and made cards for them. I made dice symbols instead of the the Royal Turf ones. So I have the hockey stick of pain, a chainsaw, flamethrower, and something else. And a hockey stick of pain. <laughs> play just like Royal Turf. It's a good time. So really, at the end of the day. I'm going to speak for both of us for a second, and then you're going to speak for you, so I'd really speak for both of us. Well worth picking up. If you can find this on Netflix, if you can find it on the internet, if you can buy a copy at Walmart for like 10 bucks, I really think this is one of the most enjoyable movies Arnold Schwarzenegger was ever a part of. Uh, It is definitely the top of the second tier of movies he made. Like, if you look at Predator as this amazing movie, then you got to jump to the second tier 
for where this one lives, but I think this is the top of the second tier of movies that Arnold Schwarzenegger ever made. Yeah, I like Total Recall a lot, but this, The Running Man, is the the high cheese factor. And there's, yeah, whether you watch it for real or you watch it ironically, I think there's a lot (laughs) for you there. I'm in the latter. I understand. And I want to thank all of you out there for listening. I have been Bruce Vogue. And Brian Counter. And thank you so much for listening. That's all for the Inverse Genius Podcast. Inverse Genius Podcast is licensed under Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivative 3.0 License. Thanks.